Okay, my name is James Watua. I come from Uganda and I work as a zoo and wildlife veterinarian at Uganda Wildlife Conservation Education Center, which is also commonly called UEC Zoo. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hi, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Raw Safari Podcast. Oh, y'all, I am so ridiculously excited about this episode. I know, I know, I say that most weeks. But the truth is, this is all very exciting stuff. But this one is really unique and really different. So I need to start off by explaining to you exactly what happened here because uh the way i got this interview well it might be my favorite story of all of the interviews that i have gotten so you may remember that a while ago i went to the aazv the american association of zoo veterinarians conference and uh while i was there i spoke to a bunch of people i know actually one of my most downloaded episodes last year was the the recap episode from there um and I, i'm glad that y'all enjoyed that so much and found it interesting but uh two of the people who i talked to there were um sydney and julie and of course these are two of the wonderful people who work at aazv and with the wild animal health fund and uh they were they were running the conference and while running this conference they were determined to help me make as many connections as possible for the podcast and um it was it was really kind of amazing because they would kind of stop whatever they were doing and introduce me to people and um tell people about what i'm doing and it was just it was very it was very meaningful it was very cool i really appreciated it a lot and um part of that led to this interview because i was i was literally just you know doing the conference being the conference guy and sid texted me and was like hey john there's someone named james out here for you to interview and i was like Wait, to interview right now oh okay and i had my my recording set up i always carried it with me and um so i went out there and i was introduced to james watua and as you heard he is one of the veterinarians at uh uwek zoo which is in uganda which is the only zoo in uganda and um I thought it was going to be like a, hey, here's a person to talk to. Maybe you guys can connect on WhatsApp and and all of that. And instead, I was like, so, James, you want to try and talk before the conference is over or do you want to? And he was like, let's go now. And I was like, oh, OK, we can do that. So I found a room at the conference center that was empty and we put up a sign. I need to remember to put this uh, in my stories today for those of you looking, but we put up a sign um, basically saying, hi, don't kick us out. We're stealing this room to record. Uh, 
And uh, I went completely blindly into this interview, and uh, it's it's incredible. James is a wildly inspirational dude. His story is different than anything that we've had on the podcast so far. And you're going to get to hear about how the only zoo in Uganda operates. You're going to hear about the animals they have, what their philosophy on different things is. And uh, it's it's incredible. And I have to tell you, um, this seems like an amazing facility. The Uganda Wildlife Conservation and Education Center, uh, which uh, has an RE at the end, by the way, also known as UX Zoo, uh, because uh, of, you know, Uganda Wildlife Education Conservation, UEC, yeah, um, is part of PAZA, which is the Pan-African Association of Zoos and Aquarium, and also a member of WAZA, which is the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums. So this is a really respected facility. As a matter of fact, they actually were rated the best zoo in all of Paza last year, um, which consists of three quarters of Africa, roughly, I think. So pretty impressive stuff. This is a zoo with a lot of credentials. And I'm really, really excited to be able to to bring to you this. It's the only zoo in Uganda. This is so cool. I'm so excited. But OK, enough about that. Enough about that. We will get to the interview in a second. But but don't forget to make sure that you hit subscribe or follow or whatever nifty button your app has so that you don't miss any episodes. Uh, and and make sure that you're following along at Rossafari on the socials at Rossafari pod on TikTok. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash Rossafari to support the pod for as little as $3 a month. But I also need to take a moment here because I need to remind you to make sure that you are following on social media at wild animal health fund at AAZV zoo vets and at AAZV Education. All three of these are not only great follows, but show your support to the zoo veterinarian community, which is a a really important community to everything that we do here. And um, just again, I want to remind you all, especially if you're a new listener and you haven't heard the Wild Animal Health Fund episode from a while ago, that uh, this organization exists to give money to people to figure out you know, what's going on in the the health of wild animals, uh, both out in the wild and their their zoo-based counterparts. And the work they are doing is amazing. And the stuff that we don't know about these animals is just, it's a vast ocean of knowledge that we still need about these animals. And Wild Animal Health Fund is what's out there and and helping people learn what they need to learn. So please consider supporting Wild Animal Health Fund. Check out the AAZV. And without further ado, let's get to this bad boy. Here is my interview with James Watua of Uwek Zoo. Uh, the only zoo in the country at the moment. Okay. I've worked as a wildlife veterinarian for the past five years. Previously, I worked with um, conservation through public health, undertaking gorilla health monitoring, research, gorilla sensors, and related activities before I joined the zoo. So, okay, so... Uh, we'll talk about all of that, and we'll talk about how you got to the zoo. Oh, okay. But I want to start with, like, little you. So are you are you from Uganda? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, when you were growing up there, were you in love with animals? Definitely. 
That's cool. Um, what kind of animals would you interact with, okay. like, as you were growing up? So I'm born in Uganda, in a small village in um, Manafa district, uh, where I grew up, where I've been all my life. And while growing up, we had a farm, meaning we had livestock, we have the pets at home. So we are five sons in a family, and each one of us, the, the first two sons, each one of us owned a pet, a small dog. Our dad bought us pets, and that's, that instilled in me the love for animals because we grew up taking care of these animals. So we were always competing to see whose animal looks better. <laughs> yeah, whose animal is doing well, whose animal is strong, whose animal is more aggressive. So we grew up with the pets as owned by we, and that really instilled in me the love and the care for animals. I also went on to take care of domestic chicken, and everybody had his chicken. So at the end of the year, you count how many chickens you have or whatever number you've produced in a year. And that really, I think, instilled in me the love. And that's when I first interacted, I think, with animals uh, up to date. That's really cool. I'm, I'm curious. So I don't know a lot about Uganda. I'll just be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, when you're growing up in Uganda, do you know that you can like become a veterinarian? Do you know that that's like a career path? Because um, I talk to people in the U.S. who don't really know that's a career path until they get a little older. Yeah. So while growing up, I really didn't at first have the idea that I would end up a vet. But uh, when I finished like high school, Fortunately, one of my uncles is was among the first vets in the country. Amazing. So my dad loved the veterinary profession and he kept encouraging me. So after my high school, he was like, by the way, you know, your uncle was one of the vets by then in the East African region in the early years of the um, 60s. And he was a very well-respected doctor. He was looking, overseeing the farms in the country. And so... The family was so proud of him. And being the first son who finished or who studied biology and sciences in high school, my dad knew what he wanted me to become. But me, I didn't at first know why he was so much pushing for me to join veterinary school. So when it came to joining vet school, I had to decide I wanted to become a medical doctor, human medical doctor. My dad wanted me to become a vet. So when the results for the selection came back, I was offered vet as a course. And um, in the region, not, there are not so many veterinarians. The people who are working there as vets are from other ends of the country. Okay. So the profession wasn't well much known except to a few who knew what vets are. Like my dad, he knows his brother was a vet. So, um, but later I kind of followed the path. Um, and along the years of vet school, I came to really love the profession. But initially, I really didn't know I would end up a vet. Much as I loved the animals, we have the animals at home and all that, I didn't know vet as a career per se. But along the way, I got this encouragement from my dad, and I really loved the profession later on. That's so cool. I love that. That's really neat. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so as you're going through your education there, um, is it, especially since it was a relatively new profession, was it like a standard vet school that you went to or how, how did that work out? Yeah. So in Uganda, we have one main university 
uh, which is the government university called Makerere University, and it's the only university offering the veterinary course. Previously, it was the only university in the region. That means Kenya, Uganda, and other neighboring countries were sending students to study veterinary medicine uh, in the region from Makerere University. So I finished my high school uh, in 2010, and then I joined veterinary school in 2010. 12. Yeah. So uh, that is a five year course, full time study. And after there, I joined different organizations up to where I am now. But there is only that university offering veterinary medicine as a course in this in the country. All right, we'll be back after this quick break. What's all around you? Almost everywhere you look and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. Wow, that's a really interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm obviously very glad that you, uh, you were pushed into that and that mm-hmm. the school was there. <laughs> that's really cool. Interesting. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what, was your, what was your first vet job like? Well, yeah. So while in vet school, still... Um, yeah, I knew my dad was so happy. He has a son studying veterinary medicine. <laughs> he's going to be like his uncle and he's so proud of me. But while I'm joining vet school, I'm not so much convinced that this is the best for me. I wanted something else, just a little different, maybe to deal with people. But here I'm going to deal with animals. So I struggled a bit to accept that, yes, I'm in vet school and really I have to do this thing and they love us to be there. So within the first year, I was basically just studying, but I wasn't into it as much. So towards the end of second year, my friends who studied like a shorter form of the vet school, that's a diploma, were already in the field practicing. So they called me and said, oh, James, join us. I'm like, but I've never held a needle. I don't even need drugs. What am I going to do? Like, no, you come. So I tag along and I start to see, oh, so this is the work. So I first, the first animal I ever treated was um, swine, that's pig. And it was aggressive, you know, but I managed to do it. So when I was able to inject a pig for the first time, I got the courage. I said, oh, so I can't do this thing. So I went on to inject the second one, the third. By the end of the day, I was so confident I can do this. And I saw people were really appreciative. They didn't know as a student. They thought, oh, this is the real vet we've been waiting for. So it built some confidence in me. But then my real first veterinary job is um, I, I, I volunteered. It wasn't a straightaway paid job. I volunteered for a year. I was working with a mountain gorillas and I got this inspiration because along the years of the course, I kept tagging alongside vets um, who were doing domestic practice, small animal practice, and I got to see the nature of work they do. 
So by the time I was finishing vet school, I had tested all practices under the vet, all specialties, the small animal, the large animal, and I knew, well, I didn't want to do that. So I focused more to the wildlife bit because I'd already gotten a feel of what it is to do large animal practice. So I got inspired by a one doctor, Kali Magaladis, who is a known wildlife vet in Uganda. And I requested to volunteer under her institution and her mentorship. So I, I sought mentorship and guidance from her. And she offered me a position as a vet volunteer. And that was in um, conservation through public health. That's where I first worked as a vet graduate from school. So I participated in programs that were monitoring gorilla health. You know, we go out there in the field, we follow the gorillas. And it was also the first time I ever got to the uh, park. You know, we have the parks, but not many people go to the parks. They, They think it is for some special people. So it was the first time I was seeing a gorilla. Yet we have gorillas in the country, but I was just not into it. So we follow the gorillas, we pick the fecal samples, we take to the lab, we assess. We also pick fecal samples from people and animals at the interface of that uh, uh, conservation. So gorillas, people, and livestock. So being something new and so interesting, I really got into it because I kept wanting to know more about the wild. So that was my first job. And what really inspired me to want to put a solid foot in conservation was the fact that I was chosen or given the chance to participate in what we call mountain gorilla sensors. So literally we walk through the park in and out, you know, creating sectors on the map and following the gorillas in the park and counting them, picking samples and submitting them for DNA analysis so that we are able to count the exact number of gorillas in the country. So I'm so proud because that opened my eyes to the conservation career, to the wildlife vet practice, and I've never looked back because that work uh, is is part of the work which saw the gorilla status being downgraded from critically endangered to endangered. And I'm so proud of that, to have been part of that team. And it really opened my eyes. I've never looked back. I've gone on to pursue a career as a specialist wildlife vet to date. And I don't think I'm about to give up. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's really cool. That's mm-hmm. an amazing story. Yes. Um, I, I speak to mostly people from the United States on the podcast, although we've we've gone around the world a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, the the story is not usually I started doing the thing mm-hmm. and then became passionate mm-hmm. about it. That's so cool. I love that. Um, are gorillas still super important to you? Super important. Not to me alone to the country at large, and to the region. Because Uganda like, uh, is a landlocked country, so our business is not like other countries which have the cost, they have, air, they have water transport, imports are coming in. So the country and others like that have had to look out for ways of generating revenue. So tourism is the number one revenue generator for the country. Wow. And gorilla tourism stands number one on the list. So, and through this, there's been a lot of development 
in the communities and in the country as a result of having gorillas. So um, gorillas are super important as well as other wildlife because of the role they play to the economic um, situation of the country through revenue generation. But also as animals, they have an ecosystem role they play in the ecosystem out there and other wildlife because it's interconnected. People, animals, the environment all play a role. So I believe gorillas are super important as well as other wildlife and other animals. Right. In the no, ecosystem. That's, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, I, you know, you talk about the interconnectedness of all of this and how yes. people are now also interconnected because of the economics. Yes. Um, in general, and I know we can't speak for everyone, mm-hmm. but in general, do the people of Uganda understand how important gorillas are to their economic standing um, as well as the ecosystem? Or is that conservation education a big part of what you guys need to do? Yeah. So fortunately, I also happened to uh, work in the zoo while training in veterinary school. So I interned at the zoo. Nice. And uh, four years down the road, they employed me as their vet. So that sealed my path in in, in conservation. So uh, we have institutions like the one I work for, the Uganda Wildlife Conservation Education Center, it is a government agency which is mandated to do conservation education. And For, this is a government... Ed, ed, this is ed, a government uh, agency. It's amazing. And that is the number one mandate. Conservation education with a focus on the young generation. Nice. So we traverse the whole country. We have kind of uh, trucks which have screens on and we traverse the whole country going to schools, going to communities that live in the par- near the parks and alongside the parks, preaching and teaching them to appreciate the value of wildlife and why they should live in harmony with this wildlife, showing them the benefits they would get out of preserving the wildlife that they have next to their doors. So the country and the institution I work for, I'm so proud to say, is doing a lot of work in terms of conservation education. And then also the people, because this uh, changes perception. There are people who may not have appreciated the value of wildlife, but through continuous sensitization and exposure, they really come to love uh, the wildlife. So we offer them opportunities or avenues for them to really feel and appreciate uh, wildlife. For example, the zoo has an open day where everybody in the country is free to visit the zoo wow. and learn and appreciate. The Uganda Wildlife Authority, which also is in charge of wildlife in the country, both in the protected areas and outside protected areas, it offers the lowest rate for the locals to visit the national parks, sometimes even at uh, subsidized prices on special occasions. They have buses which go around picking people to just take them to the park to appreciate <laughs> nice. that, oh, you have, a, you have elephants here and this is the role they play. But most importantly, as a country, um, revenue being generated from tourism is quite well known to every Ugandan because there is a lot of effort the government is doing in promoting tourism, more so domestic tourism. And... They have programs in place, which we call revenue sharing programs. So at the end of the financial year, they look at how much revenue was generated from tourism, from uh, gorilla permits, 
Gorilla tourism and others. And then a percentage of that is sent back to the communities through their um, leadership infrastructure. So that money is sent back to the district and then it is agreed upon by the people to say, okay, look, we received this amount of money. What should we do with it? So they can opt to construct a road. They can opt to extend water to the people deeper in the villages. They can opt to construct a school. They can opt to do anything they agree upon as a community with that money. And with that, people are really appreciating and supportive of tourism and conservation and the benefits uh, that come out of it. That's incredible. Night. They literally get to understand that like a gorilla built their school. Exactly. That's amazing. So they get to know, oh, this road is right here because of us having the gorillas next to us. So the next time they are not going to spear the gorilla, they're not going to feel bad because the gorilla has passed through their garden. And plans are underway to have compensation schemes. So when people are aware of this, they learn to live in harmony. In other words, they will coexist because they know in one way animals, these are in one way or another, these animals have been there and they will be there. Whether you love them or you don't love them, we have to learn to live with them. So that is something I must say is, is good because it changes the attitudes of people when they learn to know, oh, this is valuable. So I don't need to kill the animal. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I uh, mm. I have to tell you, so when we when um when we first connected, yes. so for those listening, uh, we're doing this interview at the AAZV conference in Nashville. And um, <laughs> I got a text from Sydney, who's uh-huh. one of the people that works with AAZV. Yes. And she literally said, there's a guy named James in the lobby to interview with uh-huh. you. That's not <laughs> really how I normally do things. And I was like, I don't know who this person is, uh-huh. but I trust Sydney uh-huh. <laughs> and I trust everyone here. So I'm like, okay. Let me see. I, I did not expect to be so blown away by oh, this, though. Interesting. That's really cool. Yeah, I had yeah. I had no clue what we were going to talk about um, until we talked about it. This uh-huh. is great. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 so happy that you're sharing it. But I do want to pause for a second. We'll go back to Uganda because we perfect, have a lot more to perfect, talk about. Perfect. But like I mentioned, we're in Nashville, Tennessee, right now. Mm-hmm. Why are you here? How did you get here? How did that work out? Tell mm-hmm. me things because that's got to be a heck of a trip. Yeah, sure. So I first got to know of AAZV through online search opportunities, uh, mostly at the point when I was, uh, when I'd learned of gorilla conservation, I was now in conservation and I knew I needed to know what goes on in conservation. So I tried to search about associations to which I could subscribe and AAZV came in my search. So when I read about it, I saw very nice programs. The membership is subsidized. And they have so much support for people, for vets in wildlife. So I reached out to AAZV um, management. I sent an email, and that was way back in 2018. So in 2018, I applied for the conference. I wasn't successful. 2019, I applied for the conference. I wasn't successful. 2020, I applied for it. But I'd already become a member, and I got to know what it means to be part of AZV. So 2019, uh, 2020, or 21, I applied again. I never got it. Those are four times, three, four times. Then in 2022, I applied. And guess what? 
I got a scholarship. I was <laughs> so excited. I said, this is my starting point because this has been my first time to attend AAZV, uh, much as I knew what it does. And uh, just to let you know, I've, I've, I've gotten support from AAZV for my master's research. Wow. They funded my research and I have a very beautiful video of what they have done for me. Yeah, so um, being the first time, I must say it has been um, an eye-opener, an experience. First of all, the journey was, I think, the longest journey I've taken. And the experience was uh, a little different because once I reached uh, Minneapolis, I missed my flight to Nashville at the last moment. Oh, no. So there was a lot of traffic at custom clearance, and it just took longer than we thought. So I missed my flight, which was one-hour flight or, or so. So I was like, okay. I wasn't so happy, but I'm like, maybe it's an experience. So I stayed in Minneapolis for a night, and then I flew in Nashville the next morning with a lot of jet lag. <laughs> and uh, right away we came to the conference that is a Sheraton Music Hotel. And guess what? I get to meet some of the faces I've been emailing for years. We've never met in person, but they are right here. So the conference has offered me a platform to meet the people, some of whom I've just been reading about uh, what they do with wildlife and all the work they're doing for conservation. So I must be really honest. The conference has been a platform for me to meet uh, people, to interact and to connect professionally, and most importantly, to learn and keep this connection in support of my career and the work I do for conservation. That's awesome. And you just, while we were sitting in this room, Mm -hmm. connected with Dr. Meredith Persky at Jacksonville, Uh right? And that's like... I just love seeing these things happen. I left the room. You guys were chatting so much. I went and got uh-huh. water and pee. <laughs> I yeah. love seeing that. It's really cool. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was in Jacksonville, and that was the first zoo I visited while in the States. That's interesting. That was in 2022. Okay. So I couldn't let her go without letting her know I, <laughs> I've been at your facility. Yeah, yeah that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think of Nashville? Nashville? It's quite a busy place, I must say. It really is. But it's lively. It's lively. Every angle you turn, people are happy. People are doing a lot, I must say. And it's a beautiful place. It's very beautiful when you look at the scenery. The other day we were at Nashville Zoo and, oh, I was blown away. (laughs) It's the best event I ever had, you know. A lot of people, so supportive. They are really lovely people. And the place is beautiful and lovely. I love it. Good. I will come back again. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear that. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Mm. All right. So let's talk about your zoo work a little bit. You okay. know, I'm, I'm curious. So you are at the zoo in Uganda. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Yes. And um, do you have like a big vet team or are you the vet team? <laughs> so ideally in the past, when I was a volunteer, when I was doing internship in the zoo, there was only one vet clinical vet who would do all the work. And I think the work was, the workload was much. Yeah, so some of the vets I know of kept leaving, complaining of it, too much workload and things like that. But then along the way, uh, when I got into the zoo, we the first two vets employed at the same time. So nice. yeah, we joined two vets. 
And then after two years, one of the vets transitioned and became a manager. So I remained in clinical practice for the past five years. I've been a very active clinician. And now, uh, since one of the colleagues I joined with left clinical practice to become a manager, she created a gap. So we recruited a second vet who is uh, younger than me and a recent graduate. So I've been training him. So ideally, we are two clinical veterinarians and one manager who is always a vet. So if things get tough, we say, manager, come down here. Let's <laughs> come and help us since he's our senior. So we are three veterinarians, apparently. So like right now, I'm in the U.S. The other vet is in the U.K. One vet is on ground. Okay. So we are three veterinarians, and uh, we run the zoo. Maybe, do I talk more about the zoo? Oh, yeah, please. Sure. So, Tell me what animals you have. Tell me everything. All right. So the Uganda Wildlife Conservation Education Center uh, is also known as UEC Zoo. Okay. That is the abbreviation we use. It is a member of the Pan-African Association of Zoo and Aquarium. Our executive director is currently the president of PAZA. Uh, that is zoos in South Africa, East Africa, and West Africa. That's the association. And we subscribe to the WAZA. That is the World Association of Zoos and Aquaria, mm -hmm. where our director and other managers have been part of the executive of WAZA on several committees for the past years. So uh, it is the only government zoo in the country under the Ministry of Tourism, Wildlife, and Antiquities. And the Ministry of Wildlife is also having other agencies which do conservation work or, or, or wildlife veterinary work. For example, the Uganda Wildlife Authority, which is mandated to take care of free-ranging wildlife in protected areas in the whole country and wildlife outside protected areas. And then the zoo was created uh, way back in 1952. So it has transitioned from being a typical zoo where people see animals in cages to a wildlife rescue, rehabilitation, and release center where we do more of caring for the animals, taking into consideration the welfare concerns, and not necessarily using animals for an exhibition. So the zoo has several programs or mandates. But the number one mandate is conservation education with a focus on the younger generation. So we traverse the country, as I've told you, educating communities about the importance of wildlife. And then another mandate is we do rescue, rehabilitation, and release of wildlife. So rescues come in from either confiscations, you know, people use the country as a transit route for wildlife and wildlife products. So we rescue sometimes thousands and thousands of birds, insects, which are in transit. So they are intercepted at the airport and brought to the zoo. And some of these cannot be just taken back to the wild. So we rehabilitate them. We take care of them. We have a hospital where I co-supervise the hospital and the staff. And then we have a collection of up to uh, 550 individual animals. That ranges from mammals like elephants, the giraffes, the zebras. Uh, we have tigers, the lions, among others. Then we have the birds, the shoebills, some of the most 
Oh, yeah. I love shoe bills. We'll I've shoe seen bills. every shoe bill in the United States because oh, there aren't many and I've made a point to see all of them. Yes. Yes. So in Uganda, we are the only facility that has up to eight of them wow. uh, under human care. The rest are in the wild and there are only a few countries which have shoe bills. So we have shoe bills, we have the African gray parrots, the crested crane, and then we have the... Um, Reptiles, a lot of them, snakes and, and, and reptiles. And then we also have the cats, you know. So we have quite a diverse collection of uh, wildlife. And then in the rehabilitation, we have a national wildlife hospital. And also we are the rescue sightings center for IUCN in the region. So we do a lot of rehabilitation. For example, recently we rehabilitated close to 100 parrots. Oh, wow. Which African grey parrots, which were confiscated by somebody who was moving them from Congo through Uganda, and they were living for wherever, I don't know. Right. So we rescued them, rehabilitated them at the National Wildlife Hospital, and released them back to the wild. And then we also have a biobank where we do specimen collection and saving for more so endangered species. We do breed endangered species for release back to the wild, and we've had tremendous success in breeding. Nice. Yes, including uh, breeding the crested cranes. That's the national bird for Uganda. It's also endangered. So in the zoo, I do, I do oversee the hospital quarantine unit where I supervise keepers, uh, a laboratory technician, the food or the nutritionist, and the day-to-day work involves treatments, clinical assessments, laboratory work, post-mortems, and nutritional advice to the people in that line, among others. Uh, annually, we do health checks where we knock out individual animals to assess, pick samples, and do all the evaluations. So we do quite a lot of work, and that's why we are a team. We work as a team because uh, you can't be good in everything. You know this best. Your colleague may know this better. So we work together to create that synergism and uh, do the work. Very cool. Is there like a um, keeper staff as well, like outside of the veterinarian team? Yeah, we do have up to 30 to 40 zookeepers okay. trained. Uh, they have served way for more years than me. <laughs> so they've been there long enough and they are really lovely people. We are actually going to celebrate the International Zookeepers Day very soon uh, on the 4th of October. We are, they are also part of the International Zookeepers Forums and Associations, and we work with them. We don't just work as vets alone because we help each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, it sounds like it's an amazing facility. Definitely it is. That's, you, I, I would say you should be proud, but I can tell that you are <laughs> proud. Like, you are dripping with pride. And it's not, like, individual pride. No. You're proud of the, the place and the people. And, yes, the institution. Definitely. Yes, that is the right word. Yeah. That is... Actually, uh, we were the best so cool. zoo. We were ranked as the best zoo in the West, uh, South, and East Africa. Yeah, there are those awards of best zoos. Wow. So we are waiting a second accreditation, but I'm sure we will surpass that. So I'm proud. Honestly. You should be. I'm proud That's of my work. Amazing. I'm proud of the vet I've become. I'm proud of the institution I work for. And I'm proud of the country I like. That's wonderful. Yes. Um, 
It's so interesting because I feel like the zoos in the United States, mm-hmm. with with few exceptions, have such a focus on exotic animals from places other than here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like you guys are mostly working with, you know, native. national native wildlife. Yes. Yeah. And I'm curious, I, I want your opinion. This is kind of a weird question, but stay mm-hmm. with me. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's just because the wildlife in Uganda is so amazing? I mean, <laughs> you have, like you said, elephants, gorillas, uh, uh, giraffes, yes. African greys, like, you know, uh-huh. cranes. You have this amazing stuff. Or do you think it's just that, like, America could do the same, we mm-hmm. just choose not to for whatever reasons? I think that question has two sides. Okay. Yeah. So I think Uganda being quite a diverse country, it's one of the most diverse countries around. So we have a variety of these animals altogether. But also in the past, some people have tried to have also what I would call exotic animals that are not native to really Uganda. Uh, but it depends on the purpose. For example, we hold some exotic animals too, but how they come in justifies the need. For example, we have cockatoos. These are birds, very beautiful white birds. They are like African gray parrots, but different in color, and they are not native to Uganda. Right. But how they ended up in the zoo is so different because they were confiscated from somebody who was exporting them out. So they can't be let back into the wild in Uganda because they're not native there and we have to keep them and use them as um, ambassador animals, which we educate the communities about. Then we also have the main mandate of conservation education. So when you're teaching people about the need to conserve the environment, I think you have to go away Uh, from restricting yourself to only your native species. So for that, we acquired uh, through zoo exchange and learning programs, we got a pair of tigers. Okay. Tigers are not native to Uganda. Right, right. But we have tigers. So these these would be like exotic. And they are serving the purpose because being the only zoo with tigers, which are not native to Uganda, it has kind of sparked an alarm. Everybody wants to see a tiger. For the first time in Uganda, I'm like, I want to see a tiger. Where do I go? They come there. And when they come around, they end up learning about the other animals, which they may initially not have interest or may not interest them as much as these exotic animal species. And then in the end, the zoo serves its purpose of educating the masses that come. So sometimes these exotics play a role that they they, they are are, are an eye-catcher. When you hear of an animal that naturally does not belong to the native land here, it is chances are so high that you would want to see, just like people fly from all over the world to go and see gorillas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody says, I want to see how a gorilla looks like. So similarly, when you have these exotics, I believe now in the setting of like in the US, they are quite an eye, an eye catcher and they help convey the message of educating people because I believe way back before we were born, maybe these animals traversed nations. We have had this interconnectedness. 
just that climate change has, of course, caused fragmentation and things like that. Sometimes animals are cut off from one continent to another. But maybe previously, they used to cross and they weren't boundaries and animals don't know boundaries. That's why you find some animal species very closely similar to another species, say in Madagascar, others in, in the other continents. So there, there could have been that connectedness way back. And I believe um, the exotics uh, play a very big role in the zoo. And also the native wildlife plays a very big role. Say, for example, if you have exotic animals that are extinct in one continent, but you have them here, that serves the purpose of conserving or the importance of conserving. When you tell people, look, we are able to have these exotics here because we are using them to educate the public to know, oh, such and such an animal existed here. And then maybe if it's no longer existing, they ask why. And you have right the platform to educate them. So I believe they play an important role. But over time, uh, with uh, advancement in uh, collaborations and working relationship between nations and continents, there have to be guidelines about which animals do you bring, how do you bring them. And that's why I think we follow the IUCN, we have the CITES in place to guide this movement and exchange of uh, animals between one nation, one continent. So I believe as time has passed, as changes co go on, uh, the guidelines set in place by these uh, unions and the corporations and collaborative uh, movements help guide that. So I don't think it's about to stop. You will continue seeing exotics. We shall continue having the natives too. So in my opinion, I feel it's, it serves the purpose because the model of operation of zoos revolves around um, um, inciting somebody and picking their interest to come to your facility to say, oh, what do you have? So the model of zoos necessitates in one or another to have the exotics. Yeah. That's a great answer. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. <laughs> um, you know, you keep saying that education is such a big thing. It is mandate number one. It yes, is what yes, you yes. must do. And that is the goal for zoos in the U.S. as well, at least the good accredited zoos, mm -hmm. all that stuff, you know. And I talk to a heck of a lot of people who work very hard to do that. Mm -hmm. But I have also been doing some studies that show that, like, at least in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, signage is not particularly read by mm -hmm. people that come to zoos. And, mm -hmm. and education is a bit of a struggle um, at great facilities. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm wondering, since that is is your, your priority and since it's clearly working from what yes. you're telling me about the public there, they, ah. they are – educated, mm -hmm. what advice would you give to zoos in other countries about how best to educate people? people. I think uh, this comes with some innovation. So for example, it is our mandate, but I must also say uh, there are still masses that don't care about animals, but we are trying our best. Right. At least from the visitors we receive, you can tell, wow, these people are changing and through the evaluations of the program. So how we do it is we have a hands-on approach, interactive. 
you know. We have what they call behind-the-scene programs. The cost is so subsidized for a local person to afford. Then we have those family programs for the children. So we have a vet, junior vet program where we work with young children to inspire them into their career through hands-on. So we have a children petting zoo or petting area where the children come and they interact with the animals up close. They touch, they pet, they can take the heart rate or see me or see the vet take the heart rate, take the temperature, and they are curious. Right. So in one way or another, we are changing their perspective. Say, oh, when I grow up, I want to take care of animals like you. So I know that one I'm contributing to conservation education and changing this generation. And then we also have what we call keeper for a day. It is hands-on that the children, the visitors come in, they change into overalls and gumboots and do the cores of the day with you. So that way somebody gets to know, oh, so this animal needs to eat. And why does it need to eat? So you explain, you have that interaction with the person and the animal. So such a person, I believe, uh, the involvement, that practical involvement in what a zookeeper does, what a zoo vet does, what a zoo educator does, really leaves an impression forever. Such a person is most likely to be positive or to have a positive attitude towards wildlife than one who may just basically pass through the zoo without necessarily having such an experience. And then we also have for higher school, as they go up the education ladder, we have internships. Very many people, trust me when you ask, where would you want to do your internship? They would want to do it in the zoo. Why? Mm. Because they are getting up close an opportunity to interact with those animals. So we have internships. We have long-stay volunteers that come in the zoo for a month, two months, three months, and they are doing hands-on. Then as veterinarians, as a zoo veterinarian, we have had to come in and involve these students through what we call health checks. So I organize the health checks and invite students globally. I've hosted students from the UK, Bristol University, Colgate University. And when they come in, I demonstrate the darting competition we did here. I do it home. And trust me, they love it. That's amazing. Some people come when they have never held a dart gun. And when you give them the opportunity, say, oh, this is a dart gun, you take them through and you hand it over to them. And then you take them out in the field, you that one and more. The next, you say, you come and try. They do it. Such people, when they leave, they have that, the experience is part of them forever. So I believe zoos can try to inspire these people into loving what zoos do. And through that, the zoos will achieve. But also, they should subsidize the costs because many people would want to participate but sometimes the institutional rules and regulations may either slow down or bar off some people. So when you are flexible around these uh, areas and you have kind of diverse programs, because if somebody can't do the course as a zookeeper, they can come in and at least sit on the truck, go out there and feed the animal, okay? And it gives that bond, you know, that... Uh, passion, somebody feels connected to the animal. 
We also encourage people to name animals after themselves, you know? We, nice. Yeah. So whenever he's, whatever he is, he says, oh, the giraffe is called James. You can tell other people, when you go to the zoo in Uganda, look for the animal, look for this chimpanzee. It is called this. So we even give them a platform to sponsor animals, you know? Somebody feels proud supporting the welfare of the animal. Annually, maybe they're giving some small money to say, oh, this goes for welfare of the animal. So the zoos have to be diverse in their programs, and then they have to encourage that hands-on interaction. Of course, I know the fact that the pandemic, the zoonotics coming, yes, guidelines and precautions have to be in place, but should be used to the advantage of the zoo while protecting, of course, the animals and the people, but to the benefit of both. That's what I can say. You know, that makes so much sense to me. Um, when I started doing this podcast, I didn't really know what it would be mm-hmm. and how much. Like, I'm a professional musician. That's what I do. Okay. Um, but as I continue mm-hmm. to get to have these experiences, because normally I'm not sitting in a conference room. <laughs> I'm at the zoo. I'm meeting animals. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know... I have fallen so much more in love with the thing that I was already in love mm-hmm. with um, that now I constantly struggle to figure out how much more I can do and how much wow. better I can make it, <laughs> you know, for the world. And you're absolutely right. But I get to do that stuff. And then my listeners are like, that was so cool. But uh-huh. also I'm jealous. Yeah. Like I have literally, you know, I could pay $2,000 and do that or maybe not even then, uh-huh. you know. Um, and I do, I, th- I think that's true because those experiences are what are making me grow and grow and grow Fuck. in my interest. That's it. That's yeah, it. <laughs> that's beautiful. I love that. Um, cool. I, I've, uh, is there anything else that you just want to share about you or your facility or anything? Just yes. anything. So um, as a, a young, growing, uh, wildlife vet in the profession, I really want to tell colleagues out there that it is one of the best professions I chose that anybody could choose and it should be driven far, of course, with passion and sometimes interest comes after getting into and you really see, oh, this is what I do. So I urge you, students who may want to take such a career path to really get mentors who are in the profession they want to take because a mentor goes way too far in making you. I am who I am because of the mentors. And I have never stopped learning, collaborating, and connecting with uh, colleagues who have a similar passion, who are working in a similar field, because that's the way to update yourself and to attend such conferences where you get to meet the people doing the amazing work around the world in one place like here. Um, Then as an institution, Uganda Wildlife Education Center is really proud of my presence here. They are so happy that I've represented Uganda and they are so proud of what we are doing. And uh, we are open to visitors. We host international visitors. We have Friends of Uwek Zoo. Uh, We have a very beautiful website where people can reach out. They can sponsor an animal. They can have a virtual tour. They can do research. They can book and come in Africa. And we just located next to the airport. So the first point of (laughs) a a, a sneak peek into Uganda is right at Uganda Conservation Education Center because we have exhibits. 
animal exhibits, which are designed to represent the national parks we have in the country. So I urge whoever is setting foot in Africa not to miss Uganda. Uganda should be on their list. And not only Uganda, but particularly Uganda Wildlife Conservation Education Center. And lastly, I'm so appreciative, I'm so grateful uh, for the support offered by the AAZV through the Mari uh, International Fowler Scholarship, which enabled me to really attend this conference. And I'm so grateful for the support. I just pray that this support extends to other colleagues, other people like me out there who are aspiring to really come to such a gathering. That's what I can say. Awesome. Thank you so much for all of that. And then it is time to embarrass yourself. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossipari Poop Story. So, um, in this profession, yes, it is good. Driven by passion, you, you get to experience a lot of things, both good and bad, just like any other profession, yes. So in my career, I have really encountered some brutal things. I have been beaten by animals while in, while in operation. And the one which really almost made me think twice about the profession I was taking is when I got beaten by a, a snake, you know, and I, I almost lost my finger. Oh, You can see this? Yeah. So for a long time, my finger was a little bent as if um, it was limb. And each time I looked at my hand, I'm like, I think I'm just in a wrong profession. I'm gonna lo- <laughs> if I've started by losing a finger, next time I lose a hand, next time I lose a foot. But I later realized these are hazards, professional hazards like any other. So I, do, I didn't take it personal. And it can happen in line of duty. And to me, that is something so far, uh, which really made me to know that, yes, hazards are everywhere. And then also while working with the mountain gorillas, I got really, uh, one time we were doing gorilla health sensors and I had never seen a wild gorilla. So the gorillas that people see are habituated over time, two, three years. So they get to know that people are part of the ecosystem, they see you and they mind their business. But then a wild gorilla has never seen people sometimes, almost times. And when it sees a person in, in its environment, it either reacts by attacking you or running away. So we are in Windy Impenetrable National Park. We are moving, looking for the gorillas, counting the nests, picking samples. I worked as a team leader. So I tell the guys I'm working with and I'm like, I've never seen a wild gorilla. I wish I would see one. Just before I could finish the statement, a gorilla sprang from nowhere in the nearby bush and charged. Oh boy. So the person in front of me fell down and I didn't know why he had fallen, only to realize the gorilla had attacked and we're just so lucky it didn't injure us, but it freaked me out (laughs) so much. But also it got me curious to say, oh, so these animals can be this dangerous. Yeah. 
Um, that's what I can see I have. I have quite many embarrassing stories, but maybe I stop there. I don't know. Yeah, that's good. That's All great. Right. Thank yeah. you so much for taking the time for Welcome doing this. Welcome and thanks for the opportunity you've given me to be part of this podcast. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, that was so neat. I had so much fun doing that interview. And um, like I mentioned in the intro, it was such a just kind of unexpected and quick thing that um, uh, I don't know. It was just cool. Like I was listening back to this and and editing for, um, you know, clarity a little bit. And um, I just... Ah, I just couldn't help but get almost a little emotional. I mean, there's no almost. I was a little bit emotional about the fact that, like, here I was doing an interview with someone from the only zoo in Uganda while sitting in a hotel in Nashville because I got to be there for the AAZV. I don't know. The whole thing's just so cool. Like, I know that a lot of people who listen have told me that they get either jealous or just are really appreciative of the cool things that I get to do with animals and stuff. And yeah, me too. Don't don't get it twisted. Me too, big time. But um, I don't know. Sometimes it, it feels like almost even cooler that I get to go and do crazy stuff like that. Like, that's just not an opportunity that that most people will ever have. And um, I feel incredibly privileged and um, just very happy that that I've made these connections and this podcast has become what it is. So uh, thank you all for being here and part of the journey. I hope y'all got a lot from that because I know I did. I, I think James really inspired me in a lot of ways. So um, yeah. All right. Well, I, I will be back on Friday with our weekly Zoo News episode. And um, if you're really lucky, I might even tell you about the new podcast, Nook. I know I know you're very excited to, to hear about that. So uh, yeah, I also have one big of really exciting news that I want to share, which is that I get to say welcome to a brand new patron. And uh, in this case, it is a red panda level patron, our highest level. So you're going to be hearing this name a lot. So I want to say uh, thank you for for joining the patron family, uh, Jenny Owens. I'm excited to have you here as part of the patron family. And as a matter of fact, uh, it's a good time now to say thank you to all of my patrons, especially my Red Panda level patrons, Dr. Laura Shank, Dr. Stephen Williamson, Barbara Bennett, and Jenny Owens. How good does that sound? It sounds really good, y'all. So I'm really excited uh, to have Jenny on board. And Jenny, I hope you're enjoying all of the uh, patron exclusive audio and the bonus episodes and all that good stuff. And I guess that's really all I have to say right now, friends. So uh, without further ado, let me leave you with this quick reminder that the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Rossi. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.